0: Welcome, hey friends. So I was a bit unsure coming here today, you know, how much warmth I need, heavy jacket, light jacket, full Russian winter gear. Um, I think I've got the wrong answer so I'm going to go with no jacket and if I start turning blue and pause and put my jacket on you'll understand what's happened. (laughs) Anyway, I've got a question for you this morning, this morning. Yeah, I'm it's been a long week. I'm a little bit slow, a little bit behind the times. <laughs> That's what happens when you get old. Uh, when you meet someone, what questions do you ask them? You know, what is your name? Why did you come here today? What other questions might you ask? Where are you from? What do you do for work? You come here often. Do you come here often? Yes. <laughs> What's something significant that's happened to you in this last six months? Yeah. Are you single? single? (laughs) Someone gets right to the point, don't they? (laughs) Yeah, what's a pretty girl like you doing in a place like this? Um, Let me pick up on one of these questions that we often ask. Where do you live? Well, where do you live? Actually, don't answer that now. If you're a regular here, I can look you up in the church directory. Um, and if you're a visitor, maybe I don't need to know, or we can talk about it afterwards. But it's often an important question. Now, I might be about to date myself here, but does anyone here remember what a blockbuster video is? Yeah. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> That's right. It's a video rental store. Okay. Now, new show of hands, who's rented a video from a video store? Good. Okay. Okay, Netflix has not completely destroyed the video rental market yet, obviously. They're pretty rare these days, though, aren't they? Though we do have one in here in Ingleburn, yeah? It's called Ingleburn Fair Movies, which is a bit of an odd name since it's not an Ingleburn Fair anymore. It's down on Oxford Street with all the real estate agents, but it does rent movies. Now, back in my day, when you went to a video store for the first time, one of the questions they would ask you is, where do you live? In fact, it was such an important question that they not only wanted to know where you lived, but they wanted you to prove it. So what sort of things, for those who remember, what sort of things could you show them to prove where you lived? Sorry, driver's license? Yeah, that was useful. Student ID, ID? yep. Yeah, the other big one was a rates notice, you know, some sort of bill you'd set with your address on it and your name. But, um, yeah, Jared's actually stole my next joke because I was going to say that there are other ways once you could show him proof of residence. For example, you could actually have someone over to visit, but you can understand why the video store staff might find that a bit impractical. <laughs> Nonetheless, it's an important question. Where do you live and can you prove it? That's houses. But, where do you live can apply to other places as well. For example, a city or a country. The city or country you live in will shape your life. It'll affect your accent. It will affect the clothes you wear and the foods you prefer to eat. It'll shape your cultural expectations. And if you go somewhere else, you'll probably stand out as being different. And if we're somewhere else, we might care enough about where we live to make sure people don't get us confused. I'm sure we've all heard the stories of the Canadian tourists who make sure they're wearing a Canadian flag so that no one mistakes them for an American. And where we live affects our lives even in small ways. Someone who's living in Lamia is more likely to go shopping in MacArthur Square than someone who lives in Kasula. They'll probably go to Crossroads. Your life, your life is shaped by where you live. John, the Apostle John, cares about where you live. So let me see if you recognize this saying, okay? If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Okay, so first the easy question. Who's John quoting? Someone that's very unsure. Come on, firm voice. Repeat it with a firm voice. Jesus, that's right. John's quoting Jesus. Good. Next question. To whom is Jesus speaking? Ooh, who's Jesus speaking? I, I had Joe this morning calling out the answers for this which worked, but I think he's lost his voice. So um, the 12 disciples, that's right. Now, here's the tricky question. When and where? Last supper, last supper good, okay, I've got Joe. woo thanks, Joe. Where do we, the last supper in Jerusalem. He's talking to the, John, the 12 disciples. It's recorded in John chapter 14, verse 23. Joe's having a power nap, don't worry about it. He's heard this twice before. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's God dwelling with us. What about the other way around? Look, come with me to John 15, just after, just after the passage I just quoted from. Come with me to John 15. Yeah, it'll, it'll be easier if you have your Bible open for this one. So if you can, grab one of the pew Bibles or your phone or... Do you guys still know what Pew Bibles are or does everyone use their phone? <laughs> okay, right. John 15. So let's walk through this together and see how Jesus, John and John who's recording his words, talks about living in God. Now you might not notice in the Pew Bibles because the NIVU translators have used the word remain. But older translations use the word abide, which means to live or to live with or to dwell. So let's walk through John 15, 4 to 8. And I'll swap out remain for dwell. Starting at verse 4. Dwell in me as I dwell in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must dwell in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you dwell in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man dwells in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, he can do nothing. If anyone does not dwell in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you dwell in me, and my words dwell in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So do you hear the image? Be like a branch on a vine, like a branch dwelling in a vine. For a branch to live, it needs to be attached to a plant. It's part of the plant. The branch draws its life from the plant. You take away the plant, you take away the life. Every so often I'll buy a bunch of flowers for my wife. When they're picked, when I buy them, they usually look pretty good. That's the flowers. My wife looks pretty good all the time. But give it a week... Not so much. Meanwhile, I've got a hibiscus bush out the front of my house and it keeps producing flowers and more flowers. And when I cut it back so that they don't clog up the gutter, it produces more flowers. The branch that lives in the plant keeps producing flowers, even when I'd rather it didn't. The branch apart from the plant withers and dies. Where the branch is living matters. Where you live matters. Physically, yes, but especially spiritually. So John picks up this same dwelling image in today's passage. 3 verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains, dwells in him. In 3.24. Those who obey Jesus' commands live, dwell in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives, dwells in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Notice it goes both ways. God dwells in us. We dwell in God. And there's an even a negative sense too. In verse three fourteen, We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains, dwells. In death, Are you living in life or living in death? It's not just about whether you live in Ingleburn or Macquarie Fields or Macquarie Lynx. It's not even Tasmania versus Mongolia. You can think afterwards about which of those you'd prefer. This is death versus life. Light versus darkness. In God or away from God. John wants us to dwell in God, to live in God. Actually, he's writing to the Christian faithful here. So he starts with the premise that they are dwelling in God. To be a Christian is to dwell in God, to be one of his people. To not dwell in God is to not be Christian, to be not one of God's people. But if we're dwelling in God, what does that look like? What's our proof of residence? I hesitate to say, what are you going to show the great video store in the sky? Uh, In 3 verse 10, John sets out the two characteristics of God's people. They practice righteousness, they love their brothers. Those who are living with God will practice righteousness and love their fellow Christians. Now this isn't a new idea John made up for this letter. Back one more time to John 15, this time immediately following where we left off, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now dwell in my love. If you obey my commands, you will dwell in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and dwell in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Just as a living hibiscus branch produces flowers, so a living Christian produces obedience to God and love for God's people. It's worth noticing that John's actually asking and answering a question here. there's There's an agenda to this little passage. He's asking, how can you test whether you're living in God? And the answer is by your fruit. But do notice that the focus in this passage is on you and your fruit. For the most part, John is not giving us a metric to judge other people. You know, He's not saying Sam's a good person, so she must be a Christian. Meanwhile, Pat, he keeps on swearing. And yesterday when I was telling him about my model train set, he fell asleep. So therefore, he must not be a Christian. Look, if you do need someone who's interested in model train sets, talk to me so long as you're willing to show it to me after. But joking aside, do you hear my point? John's not trying to help us us answer the question, is that person over there good enough? He's addressing a very different question. John is writing to reassure the person who is wondering, am I God? Is God dwelling in me? Am I God's? Sorry, not am I God. Is God dwelling in me? Look, it's a good question. I can come along to church. I can tell God that I want to live for him. I can try to please him. But am I really dwelling in him? Am I God's person or just mistaken? Some of us look at ourselves and say, Oh, what a wretched man I am, or woman as the case may be. Look, and that's true. That's a good thing to say. In chapter one eight, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he then goes on to say, If you acknowledge your sin and confess your sin, he is faithful and just and brings forgiveness. Wretchedness doesn't stop you being one of God's people. The other mistake is to look at ourselves and ask, am I doing enough? Maybe we conclude that we are, maybe we conclude that we're not. You know, I am good enough. No, I'm not good enough. But John's not asking us to judge our own efforts. He's asking us to observe the work of God in our life. God's work in making us obedient and loving. If I call on the name of God and dwell in him, then despite my efforts, I, expect, I will expect to see him making me more obedient and more loving. It's not always an even process. You know, the bush grows exuberantly in spring and slowly in winter. In the same way, my life will be transformed if I am relying on God's life in me. When God feels distant, when I doubt, when I am troubled at my own sinfulness, then I reassure myself, not by looking for proof of my personal goodness, but for proof of God's goodness growing in me. The, the NIV translation of verses 18 and 19 is a little clunky, so let me quote from the ESV Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth. And will assure our heart before Him. Let me reiterate again this is not saying, do good so God will accept you. Instead, it's an exhortation and an encouragement. It's an exhortation since you are God's people, obey God and love your brothers. And it's an encouragement. When you doubt you are God's, look for His works in your life. And by looking for his works, I don't mean comparing your blessings with the next guy. I mean looking at God working out his holiness in your own heart. For a very practical example of this holiness, come with me to verses 16 to 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. If you are dwelling in God, then his work is to train your heart to love your fellow Christians. And by love I don't just mean cheering go team and going your own way nor just a desire to feel pleasant feelings when you're around them. Love is a genuine concern to ensure their well-being, even at a cost to yourself. This will impact our time, it will impact our priorities, and it will impact our hip pocket. If we have God's heart, If we dwell in him, then just as God shares his blessings, so shall we. Now, there's a lot of room for discussion about how to carry this out in practice, but let me give you one idea to shape your thinking. We know that elsewhere in scripture it says God gives spiritual blessings to some so that they may build up all the church. Let me put the idea in your head that he also gives material blessings to some So that they may build up all the church. Whether you're rich or poor, whatever you've been given by God, consider how you may follow God's lead in loving your Christian brothers and sisters. In contrast, if you have no desire to love others, maybe you haven't understood God's love, maybe you're faking your address. Let me take a quick practical example from the scriptures. Earlier, Jared read for us Jesus' parable from Luke 15, 11 to 32. It's fairly famous, so I'll just summarise quickly. One father, two brothers. Younger brother says, give me the inheritance early, goes off and wastes it all on parties and debauchery. When the money runs out, he tries to struggle on for a while, but he eventually gives up and goes home to throw himself on his father's mercy. Meanwhile, the older brother is envious and complains to dad, why are you throwing him a party? Now look, the older brother looks like he's dwelling with the father. I mean, he's in the house, isn't he? But he actually hates his brother. When the father shows mercy, the older brother is envious instead. The fruit of the father's love is not in him. Meanwhile, the younger brother, the scumbag, is shown mercy because he turns his repentance into action. Now, when Jesus is telling this parable in Luke's Gospel, the primary audience for this parable is the older brothers. Jesus is warning them, you say you love God, but you don't want to celebrate when this poor wretched brother is saved. But the man who has God's heart, he sees his brother comes back and says, what will it take to establish him? Given his background, it might take a mix of firm discipline and gentle mercy but the goal the goal of love is to see him restored, not rejected. In contrast, though, Jesus, John here is talking to those who have known God's heart. And he says to them, if you see that man, if you say, I want to see him forgiven and restored as I have been forgiven and restored, then... You have understood God's heart and you're dwelling with God and this should be a comfort to you. Coming back to where we started, what do God's people do? They practice righteousness and they love their brothers. If I live in a particular street, I will park my car in that street. I'll mow my lawn. I'll walk up and down the street and say hello to the neighbours. That's what you do when you live somewhere. If I'm not doing these things, then one can rightly question whether I really live there, even if I own the house. The person who calls him or herself a Christian, but does not live for God and seek the good of God's people, should ask whether he or she is really just wearing the badge, but not walking the walk. But what about the opposite situation? What if my house is somewhere else, but I park my car in the street? I walk up and down and say hello to the residents. I even mow the lawn of one of the houses. Look, if anyone's thinking of doing this, my lawn would love to be mowed. Please feel free. Are you really living there? You can go through the motions, maybe fool a few people, maybe even fool yourself. But until you actually move into one of the houses, you don't live there. You can come to church, you can do good deeds, you can be the most helpful and caring person in the building, but none of that's going to help you get right with God. Look, you might even come to the conclusion that this is actually a really good place to live. I think it is. But you have to actually move in, otherwise you're just an outsider going through the motions. If that last description describes you, I've got some good news... I've got some news that might initially appear bad news, but is actually good news as well. The straight good news first. At the moment, to buy a house in Ingleburn, it can easily cost you upwards of half a million dollars. Look, even renting one will cut a significant dent out of your income. But there's no housing crisis in God Street. There's always a place to move in, and he'll give it to you rent free. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are. What your gifts are, what your behaviour like. You can move in today and stay forever. That's the good news. What about the bad news? Well, you know how some companies provide free accommodation for just their people? Like military, for example. Anyone military here? No. Okay. The military, for example, has houses reserved for military people. Some big mining companies that send you way out, whoop, whoop. They have houses reserved for their people. God's housing is like that. There's plenty of room for anyone who wants to come, but you have to be one of his people. You have to be God's person, not your own person, not the world's person. God calls the shots now. God rules your life now. But in return, he gives you life and you get to share in his glorious blessings. I I said it was bad news because that's how one living in darkness sees these things. You know, I might not rule much, but I rule me and that's the most important thing. That's the message of today's age, is it not? It's in our music. I did it my way. Learn to love yourself. You're special. Follow your heart. Find your own truth. You do you. And God sits there saying, you do me. I play the tune, you dance. I am truth, you follow. But we mostly like it when God says love each other because we all like others to love us, don't we? And we're willing to give back at least some love in return. And when we look at ourselves, we we think one of three things, all very different, but all mistaken. We might think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Or if that doesn't describe you, maybe you think, I try and I try and I'm just not good enough. Or maybe you think both of those people are idiots and that God has got it all wrong and I know better. But trying hard to be good, regardless of whether you succeed or fail, even being good is not what God demands. God demands that we give up ourselves, give him our absolute loyalty and obedience, and then go and love each other. Look, and if you value autonomy, that's bad news. If you value autonomy, it's bad news, but... God says, taste and see that the Lord is good. God has not made you to be autonomous, but to be his. God's house is designed to fit you because you were designed to fit his house. We are created to be God's and live with him, live in him, walk in his ways, follow his values, priorities and truth. When you come back to him, it's like finding your way home. It's not really bad news, it's good news. It's been said, I'd rather be in darkness than be blinded by the light. Only someone in darkness can say that. You will not be blinded by the light, friends. You were made for the light. You'll only be blinded if you have your heart and eyes set on darkness. The light awaits you. God awaits you. Come home to God. To those who are already home, dwell in God. Live as a member of his household. Practice righteousness. Love the brothers. And be assured that you are his and that he will keep you. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, thank you that you make us yours. Thank you that you keep us. Thank you that you work in our hearts to do your good works, to follow you, to love others. Father God, keep changing us, keep growing us, keep making us more like you. And when we stumble, when we resist, let us know that your promise of mercy stands and let us come back to you. Know the forgiveness we have in Jesus and keep living for you, dwelling in you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.